Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. is up everybody welcome to the common good my name is ian simpkins along with brian Fromm, trying to do a new intro every single time <laughs> and i am i am running it. out of options <laughs> <laughs> you can find us on facebook at the common good radio show 1160hope.com plus if you've not heard yet the show is podcasted on literally every platform you can find and somehow magically liking it subscribing to it and reviewing it actually does help us so uh, mm-hmm. uh, if you'd be willing you would make us both smile so so big <laughs> you'd make us both smile and uh we don't we don't often do like breaking news stories i think we tend to do more oh what do you think about this topic or this idea yep. but uh you brought one to our attention this breaking news story that i think actually is worth talking about right right now why don't you let us know what's going on yeah it is uh out of pakistan uh there is someone and i hope i don't get her name wrong but asia bibby Uh, And I don't know if you saw this, if any of you saw this out there, but let me give you the background because sometimes the reason I wanted to bring this up today, Ian, is because um, oftentimes we can get immersed. Think about it. 95% of the stories you and I do really have to do with American Christianity, right? Like what's going on? Because that's what we're in. That's what we're talking to. Uh, But every now and then it's really helpful for us to be reminded that there's a whole world out there of brothers and sisters in Christ who are going through things a lot different than than you and I and, and most of us out there are. So. Uh, Asia Bibi was in Pakistan, a Pakistani woman, and she's finally been set free after eight years on death row. Six months since her acquittal on October 31st, 2018, the Pakistani Christian woman Asia Bibi is reportedly out of Pakistan and has arrived safely in Canada where her family now lives. The wife and mother of five spent eight years on death row convicted of blasphemy. When Pakistan's Supreme Court overturned the conviction last October, it was expected she would leave her home country. But the acquittal put in the motion massive and violent protests by Muslim extremists calling for her death that left Pakistani Christians fearing for their lives and their livelihood. And she was taken to a secret place. And so you're thinking, I wonder what she did. Well, it says Asia was arrested in 2009 after being accused of insulting the Muslim prophet Muhammad after a quarrel with a female co-laborer over her touching a cup of water she gave to them. The following year, she was convicted of blasphemy and sentenced to death. Despite lack of evidence and contradictions in witness testimonies, the court cases and appeals dragged on. Finally, in 2018, she was acquitted. Her case has focused global attention on Pakistan's blasphemy laws uh, that Islamic fundamentalists inside the country fight to uphold. Uh, And so it's just crazy when you read this story. And a couple things stood out to me about this story. The one is I never knew about it. Right. You know, like right. I'd never heard this story before. Uh, but two, like even when I read what she did, you gave out like a very just uh, a natural whoa. Like, really? Like yeah. that was right. it? 
and, and so it just is a good reminder, and I'd love your take on the story, but it's just a great reminder again that we've got it really good here. <laughs> we've got it good. And that we are, there are brothers and sisters in Christ across the globe who are facing legitimate persecution and possible martyrdom. And it's not to say that we don't face some, but it's just very different. And, and that if nothing else, it should draw us to prayer, to prayer beyond our kind of bubbles here and, and I think globally. Uh, and so I thought I'd share that story just because it's good news, but it also highlights some stuff that, man, is completely off my radar. Yeah, I think uh, I want to give a caveat before I respond. You always like the caveat. <laughs> I know, the caveat. I know. I never use the word caveat so much until we started doing this show. I do believe that we have really good here, and I'm yep. I'm really grateful for... Uh, my country and my family and all of that, I do sometimes wonder, um, based on the Bible and the church leaders and writers that I've been reading a lot as of late, to be honest, um, that sometimes our our sense of how good we have it is actually far more a threat to yeah. our Christianity than we realize. Yeah. Like we, we often kind of sit back, and I, that's not like the royal we. I think that you and I will say like, man, isn't it great that we don't have to face that kind of persecution? Isn't it great that we don't have to? Sometimes, honestly, I wonder. Yeah. I, I wonder what that level of ease and comfort and cushioning does to our faith. Yeah. Now, we've seen throughout history that the, the pendulum can often swing far to the other direction, yeah. and we end up with, masochism and Christianity is sort of getting intermingled yep. and it's like seeking out persecution, you know, mm-hmm. like, like trying to pick fights to be persecuted because that was seen as a way of, of, of sanctification of yep. holiness. I'm not saying that at all. I really do sometimes wonder though, when I read stories like this and think, man, th- there is something, there is character and formation that is done um, in the, in the face of uh, persecution and threat. And I think honestly, it's why we see, the church exploding in parts of Africa, yes. exploding in China. Um, and these are a lot of places where Christianity is not celebrated. I think it's fair to say that when it's, you're, it's a good point to make that when I say, or most of us say we have it good, we mean we have it comfortable. Yeah. And right. We have it. And, and none of us, like you said, that's the, that's one of the weird things all the way back to the book of acts, all the way through the mart, you know, you read the book of martyrs and all this stuff. Um, it is the, the church explodes in a good way, and faith is grown in the midst of martyrdom, uh, in the midst of persecution, but I would still choose not to have it. <laughs> yeah. so I think that's the tension. That's also how comfort works, though, don't you think? Yeah, like, absolutely. I think comfort does—I mean, this is uh, a lot of the main themes in screw tape Letters, you know, where you have this veteran demon, a fictional story work of C.S. Lewis, writing kind of this novice trainee demon, and a lot of his advice— uh, would surprise you. He's like, hey, just keep them distracted. Yep. Just keep them distracted. Keep them comfortable. That's how you actually win the war with these Christians. Um, if you if you keep them focused on the stuff that doesn't actually matter all that much, mm. which, raising my hand right now, I'm guilty of all the time. All the time. Sometimes I'll catch myself amidst freaking out about something really insignificant, and I have to ask myself, like, is this is that what you want to be about? Yeah. Is that the life that you want to live, Ian? Freaking out about a light being left on in the house or like, oh no. <laughs> yeah. Again, that's not insignificant. I'm not saying, you know, don't be good stewards of your resources yep, and all that. Yep, I just yep. think sometimes, and you you were kind of alluding to it, sometimes our comfort can lull us into a place that is far more dangerous than we realize yeah. because it's comfortable. And I do think, because it's going to probably remain comfortable for us, that I do think we need to at least be be 
uh, searching out the stories of those who don't have it as comfortable, those who are facing this, because uh, people going through what she just went through, at the very least, need the prayers of those of us uh, across the globe. And so uh, even if we're not going to face any persecution like this, one way to not be so comfortable is to be somebody who will carry the burden prayerfully Mm. for somebody like this so that it's at least part of your mindset that this is uh, the majority of the world or a lot of the world faces this uh, for the same thing that quite frankly, like you said, we take for granted. Well, and, and two, if, if, uh, if we really believe, and I think a lot of us do that Jesus cares for and stands with the marginalized, Mm -hmm. the vulnerable, the exploited, and we are a part, for example, of, arguably the largest global military superpower the world has ever seen, we may be inclined to miss some of the Bible's main themes mm. because of that, because those are the waters we swim in. Don't we so often read the stories and we want to like identify yeah. with Jesus in the story? You're like, no, 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 <laughs> no. I, I mean, even in preaching, we've both said this. Sometimes yeah. it takes honestly saying like, I might be the Pharisee in the story. <laughs> often. <laughs> I, right, I, might, I might not, I might be the antagonist yeah. in, in this particular narrative and to ask God to continue Open, opening my eyes, not only to the hurting in the world, that's, that's a big part of it, but also the ways in which I perpetuate that, even complicitly, implicitly, that God make me more aware of, of what it means to truly follow you in a world that is so often surrounded by comfort and ease. Yeah. I think that's a really, really uh, important but difficult thing to do. That's good, man. Starting the, starting the day off heavy, man. Way to, way to bring it. Well done. Well, this has been The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. And without fail, every single time that song plays, somebody in the studio dances. I was. Brian's, guilty. Brian's dancing. Everyone's dancing. It is If it only is we could have been control. on Facebook Live today. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why aren't we on Facebook Live? All right, well. It's above our pay grade. Maybe next Thursday. I don't think we've really talked about that. Join us next Thursday. We'll try it. Let's just speak it into existence. Yep. See if we're Facebook Live. Speaking of Facebook. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. That's a professional segue right there. (laughs) Or 1160hope.com. And, uh, Brian, this is something that we've we've touched on briefly a couple of times, but we've never actually committed, I don't think, like a whole segment to this. And I legitimately don't know where this conversation is going to go. But the the sentiment is something like people say uh, pastors shouldn't be political. Just preach the gospel. Yes. Have you heard something like that before in your life or ministry? Yes. Okay. And I've wrestled with it myself. Oh, same. And, totally. And I, 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 I'm interested to see where you and I both go with this. I would mention, <laughs> sometimes we just joke about the text line, like, hey, make us a compliment or something. This is actually a, a, a subject I'd actually really like to hear from people. Uh, 68683, 68683, type in CG. And basically, we're going to ask this question. Uh, should pastors be political or just preach the gospel, or is there some kind of middle ground there? So uh, if you want to uh, give us your feedback, we would love to hear it at 68683. I've told you before, uh, I am pretty non-political uh, in in the pulpit. I, you would, uh, I don't think you would know. You might make some assumptions, but I don't think you would know how I vote or those kind of things from how I preach. Uh, and, and that's always been my bent. Like, I don't want to, um, I don't think the pulpit is necessarily a place to be stumping for, you, you know, your pet issues or your candidates. Um, at the same time, uh, Jesus was not apolitical, right? Jesus dove into the issues of the time. He spoke truth into those issues. 
and uh, he riled up. I mean, he was killed by the Romans. And so the gospel in and of itself is political simply because uh, Jesus's followers declared Jesus to be Lord, right? Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. That was a political statement, right? So I don't think we could ever say be political or preach the gospel. The question I think that it really is, is what does it look like hmm. to uh, to delve into the political waters? What is the role of the pastor from the pulpit or just the Christian out there, whether it be on Facebook or around the water? People still talk around the water cooler in the office <laughs> around the water cooler. I think it, this is a gray one. Yeah, I think it also is important <clears throat> to distinguish the difference between political and partisan. I think so often what people say when they say, oh, we shouldn't be political, what they really mean is we shouldn't be partisan. So, like, for example, I have seen preachers stand in pulpits and outright tell their congregation who they should vote for. Yeah. I think that is a gross misuse of the platform, yeah. of the office, of the role. And I believe illegal. Uh, e- I mean, sure, that also. Yep. I, <laughs> I don't know. Is it- Even if it was legal, or, it's a yes, gross. Or, yeah, I agree with you. Right. Totally. And I uh, so. So, yeah, it is worth distinguishing the difference between political and That's partisan. Good. But at the core, politics is life of the people like mm. it is. And like, like you were saying, you know, the phrase uh, Kaiser Kyrios, right? Caesar is Lord was in direct opposition to Jesus Kyrios. Jesus is Lord. Yep. And the thing that's tough for us to really enter into, particularly in a, in a first century mindset is that Jesus is Lord is such a regular part of our language. And we have a needle stitched on pillows and watercolored on mugs. Like it, it, it kind of can lose some of its teeth yep. because we don't, we don't see it at all in its political context. Yep. And yeah, and you mentioned even, I mean, down down to the crucifixion itself, um, all of this was a, a political engagement, but not just the crucifixion, though. So, so much of what he was saying and doing, we often preach about how we like oppose the religious elite, but so much of what he was doing was standing in opposition to the way that Rome ran, yes. the way the powers, he was, he was constantly saying, uh, you've heard this, I'm telling you this. Mm. Sometimes that was in opposition to religious teachings, but other times that was in opposition to political teachings and slogan statements and mm. banners like that to me we miss that and to say simply why don't you keep your politics out of this yeah. and just worship jesus well jesus was always doing things that riled up the yep. most um politically aware of his time and i think we again we're we're seeing that in other parts of the world still yep. um, much like we were talking last segment and i think it is a much more visceral reality in some of those contexts that to be a christian is to make a political statement where mm. I think we get into a lot of trouble here. If I can say this, you can, I'm probably going to get in trouble for this. I look forward to it. <laughs> I think so much of our religiosity has now intermingled with our empire, with politics. Yep. And we at times don't know how to distinguish the two. So it looks like they all sort of commingle. And I think that is where some of the confusion lies. And let me join you in getting fired because I would say this, <laughs> I would say I would build, I think you're 100% right, and I would say this, for far too many Christians, politics has become the primary religion Ooh, in our get culture. Him, Brian uh, and, and that's where this, get, politics matters so much right now because it's our politicians who are making the laws that we all have to live by, right? Whether it be religious freedom, abortion, all these things, and these things matter. So the church and, and Christians need to be involved, but I think you put it well. And I would just say it again. I believe that when partisanship and political and politics becomes our religion and we lose sight of how Jesus loved uh, loved people, 
uh, and and we lose sight of how um, you you know just Jesus treated people, yeah. and instead our politics become like our religion or like our athletics, always a winner and a loser, and that that is what drives us. Right, that's really really dangerous, and I fear. That that is all too often what's going on. Like you said, this intermingling between faith and politics, kind of even politics becoming a bit of an idol to a lot of us. And uh, that's what I worry about when I read Facebook posts and other stuff. I want to be like, oh, I think I think you're losing the main point. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be political. I just right. think, I think we get the order wrong all too often. Yeah, and I do think I will say this. One more caveat. Why not? Yep. This will be the show of caveats. I think. So often we get mad at governments mm-hmm. for not implementing what we've been unable to inspire our congregations to live. Mm, right? That is, in some cases, government political office can be the easy scapegoat to do the thing that Jesus told us to do. Yep. And I realize I'm stepping on all sorts of landmines no, here. No, I think that's good. But I think it's important to, to say the government's... Right, you can you can you can make a sandwich, but you you can't actually build community. There's there is mm. plenty of great thing, and I and again, I'll own this. So much of where I think this distinction comes from is from a position of privilege. Mm. It's one thing like ah, oh, we don't worry about those political things, and those who are like kind where where systems are standing on their neck. Like, well, it's easy for you to opt out of that, but I think following Jesus means forfeiting the luxury of impartiality in the face of injustice. Yeah. We don't have that option. You don't get to follow the way of this rabbi Jesus and say, and eh, the way that this is working, even if it's exploiting people, that's not really any of my concern. I'm just going to preach the gospel. Yeah. Like that to me is an, a really unfortunate disconnect. I think it's great, man. I think we would love to hear back from you. Six, eight, six, eight, three. Uh, tell us we have it wrong. How do how do you take your faith with politics? Like, I think, I think every Christian should vote. I think every person should vote. <laughs> And I think we need to be involved, uh, but not lose the forest from the trees. We need to we need to love people. And and, and like you said, uh, our politics here it is for you, man. Our politics need to be driven by our faith and not vice versa. Yeah. Okay. Our politics, what we believe, doesn't need to be. Uh, you know, neither party has uh, has a complete cornering on 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 Christianity. And so I think it's our faith, right? Remember, I told you Scott Saul said that something to that effect. He said. Uh, if you're doing it right, if people on both ends of the political spectrum get mad at you at times, uh, our politics must be driven by our faith in Jesus and our following of him. Uh, and then, yeah, go be political. Yeah. Go go help change the world. That's good, man. All right. Well, you've heard me talking a good deal about Joe from Fox Restoration, who's legitimately a good buddy of mine. Well, we have a special treat for you today. He is here in the studio. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. Plus, if you've never heard me say it, hear me now. The show is podcasted on literally every platform you can imagine. Find it, like it, subscribe it, review it. That actually somehow magically helps us. And uh, if you've been with us for any length of time, you've probably heard me read a spot from my friend Joe at Fox Restoration. Mm -hmm. And as a special bonus treat for y'all, we have him right here in the flesh, in the studio. Joe, welcome to the show, good sir. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's our pleasure, man. Here's one of the things that I know about you because, and people have probably heard me say it, 
we actually went to church together. I did actually baptize your kids. Like you, you, you were guys, my pastor. You were seriously like one of my favorite families, and uh, I think you guys will know why in just a moment. But I would love for our audience just to get to know you a little bit. Would you just tell them a bit of your story, your faith story, your faith background, and where you are today, and why you got uh, involved in this particular line of work? Uh, well, um, I got involved with in this line of work. I was uh, I worked for a general contractor years ago, and uh, they were having some uh, financial difficulties, and uh, the business wasn't doing too well. So I decided to go on my own. Um, and shortly after that, I uh, I was an insurance adjuster for State Farm for uh, mm. about five five and a half years. Okay. Uh, after. Doing that as a catastrophe adjuster and being on the road a lot, um, you know, I decided to come home and start my own business uh, since I learned a lot about the restoration side from mm. the insurance company. So, um, you know, and after that, I I started in uh, 2010 and uh, been on my own ever since. Nice. So as uh, as far as my faith goes, uh, born again Christian, um, I was raised in a Christian home, mm. um, and uh, you know, my walk with the Lord is is a great journey like uh most christians yep, have you know yep. it's uh it's uh it's uh it's fun and the lord always proves himself faithful and that's uh that's that's one of the greatest things about it oh that's awesome let's let's talk roofs so i you were i don't know i'm like the least handy guy there is <laughs> and i'm a homeowner so i constantly look at my house and i'm like sure i'm sure i'm supposed to be doing something to it right now <laughs> sure. but i don't know Maybe for a novice like me or anybody out there, when should you even consider getting your roof looked at and getting it replaced? What would someone out there who's like, my roof's probably fine, and then you, you, you're like, mm, no, you, you probably need me to come out and look right. at it. Well, there's a couple good indications. Uh, one would be is if you have any water stains mm-hmm. on your ceilings. Um, that can be caused uh, by several things. Yeah, usually it's a, a leak around a flashing or if there's shingles that are missing on the roof, uh, of course, you want to get it looked at right away. Um, and I think uh, getting your roof inspected, uh, you know, annually or semi-annually is good if, if it's more than 10 years old because uh, the roof protects the entire home. Right. right. And uh, also having uh, your roof inspected and uh, knowing the condition it's in is good for documenting uh, in case there's a storm later and, you know, let's say the insurance company says, oh, well, that's old damage. Well, yep. if you've had it inspected, you have photos, you can say, well, if I had it inspected a year ago or two years ago and, and mm. this damage wasn't there. Right, right. You know? So the repair that you did actually was a, a parsonage I was living on mm-hmm. uh, on the property. And there was a bunch of hail damage, and uh-huh. we were freaking out, actually, because the, the repair, I mean, it was going to be an expensive job. Yes. And you have such a unique balance, because you don't just do roofs. As you mentioned, you also have this experience as an insurance adjuster. Yep. And and not only am I not handy, I also don't get insurance at all. <laughs> it's like, recent homeowner, they're like, here's a stack of uh, 87,000 pages, best of luck. And I'm like, I really need a professional to help me navigate this. How, how is that? balance of expertise helped you in your business and what you do yeah actually that was one of the best decisions i've made because really? uh, working for the insurance company uh really taught me the ins and outs of the claim process and um oftentimes uh adjusters will come out and and, and write a claim on a scope of work and uh there may be things that are missing and and no fault to them uh they're humans they right. they, they miss things as well uh but being uh, a contractor as well. I'm able to uh, point out whatever items are missing 
and uh, supplement the insurance companies so that the homeowner is getting what they paid for. That's right. Um, and if they're paying for a replacement cost uh, for their for their roof or their home restoration, then um, you know they're entitled to that. So yeah. uh, having that experience on the uh, adjusting end really helps to uh, help the homeowner get what they're supposed to get. Yeah, no awesome. kidding. And what's it mean? It seems like a great thing. You're A-plus rated. Mm-hmm. Uh, what exactly does that mean? Because, you know, people are probably like, well, Ian, it's, it's, Ian vouches for him, but yeah. A-plus, not as much as, as, we respect, know, right? as much as we respect <laughs> Ian. Uh, A-plus rating seems, sounds like a big deal. So what does that mean? Well, A-plus ma- rating means that, yes, you have a good rating, but to me what it means, it's, it's how you handle problems. Because mm-hmm. in any mm-hmm. business, you're going to have uh, issues that arise. And, uh, you know, I've heard all the horror stories about contractors yeah. taking money, never coming back or doing a repair and uh, not honoring their warranty. And no kidding. Uh, so, you know, to me, the A-plus rating is important because it's how we handle problems. Uh, you're going to have uh, problems in any business that you're in, uh, but do you run away from the problem mm. or do you take care of the problem correctly and, uh, you know, do right by your customer? Yeah, that's and, right. And to me, that, that, that's what it means. See, and that's honestly what makes it so easy to to do these reads for you because I know not just the the level of skill that you bring, but your character. And I think we've been talking about this for a couple of weeks, actually, how much that is a draw because you you care about the character. And if you're just joining us, we're talking to Joe from Fox Restoration. You can learn more at foxclaim.com. You can even schedule a free, no-obligation estimate, and that is free-free. That's like... <laughs> yeah, that's right? free-free. That, that's not free, but if I should, if, if, if I drive more than 10 miles and there's a per-mile, that's a free-free estimate. Correct. And what happens during this estimate? Like if someone... Visits the website or they call. You can call at eight 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 two six nine five one one three. What happens after they do that? Well, uh, I go out and meet the homeowner. I will do a free inspection to uh, find out the status of uh, and the condition of the roof, and and uh, find out a few things. One is there a valid insurance claim? A lot of restoration companies will uh, really try to talk you into filing a mm. claim. And uh, I, I don't believe that's uh, the best. In, it's not in the best interest of the homeowner if there's not a, a real valid reason to call it in. Right. A lot of companies will just uh, try to get you to do it and hope that the insurance company buys it. Hmm. And um, I don't think that's best because why put a claim on your on your record uh, if if there's really not. A valid reason to file yeah. that you claim. Like become so, the boy that claimed uh, cried a wolf. Yeah, right? yeah. Yep. Well, so I want to make sure that there's a valid reason mm. if they're going to file a claim. If not, then you know we work on uh, a retail type uh, estimate for them and uh, try to get them the best deal for for their budget. Yeah, that's I got awesome. an idea, mm-hmm. man. You ready for my idea? Lay it on us. But you and I are we're still new to this, so we're not sure what we're allowed to do, what we're not allowed to do. <laughs> but we got like a total. Uh-oh. We got swag back there. We got like books Ooh. and like people don't know. We got mugs, like common good, like uh, what are those? And they're not mugs, like water bottle type stuff, yeah. pens. We got all this stuff. Well, what do you say? Like the first five people who get a free estimate, we'll send them a bag of stuff. I'm okay with that. How's that sound? Bag of swag. So he'll, swag Joe, bag. There you go. Joe's going to need to tell us who the phone calls are from because we won't know. Sure will. But if you pass them on, free stuff. Ian will even take out the lunch, but we'll see. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't think that incentivizes people. I don't either. So how about free stuff? We'll I don't even want to hang stuff. out with me. Yeah. <laughs> I am telling you guys, though, and I know that you hear me say this every single day, but uh, Joe, I'm not only grateful just for your skill. In your capacity to navigate, like you were saying, really difficult issues, but doing it with character, like yeah. doing it with integrity. Yeah. I don't know why this is, but that seems rarer and rarer. Like I feel like people of your stature with your level of integrity, um, we need your voice. Like mm. we need your work 
in Chicagoland. And the thing that I love about you is that it's not like, oh, it's character, but his skill is all over the place. It's like, no, no, no. Hundreds of completed projects, like all sorts of happy customers. I know you and your family personally. I cannot encourage you enough. If you're listening, call 888-269-5113 or visit foxclaim.com. Plus, uh, if a job is more than $5,000, Joe's going to donate $200 to Food for the Poor. That is That's a cool. big deal. That's your dollars making an even greater impact for the kingdom. Joe, thank you so much for joining us we'll on the show se- today. Plus, we'll send swag. Plus, swag and lunch with Brian Fromm. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. It's nice to Thanks, meet you. Thanks, guys. I yeah, appreciate it. really appreciate it, man. This That's has been The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. That actually was Brian's band from high school. <laughs> I'm going to keep doing that joke until you admit that it actually was your band. I wasn't in a band. <laughs> I play nothing. One of these days, I'm going to do it so often, you're like, fine, this I'm just going to agree to it. No, this is from the best of Modest Mouse. <laughs> <laughs> the best of Modest Mouse. Well, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, or hanging out at any Chick-fil-A in the Chicagoland area. Just come up and say hi to us. And uh, <laughs> I am... Unhinged today, man. Today? Too much coffee. That's what's that's what's I mean today. All right, so here's here's another topic that I feel like it's brought up on occasion in the weirdest ways possible, and it often sounds something like this: <clears throat> Christians shouldn't ever get angry. Mm-hmm. Like we're supposed to be kumbaya people, and we just sort of sit in a holy huddle and we sing hymns and we play nice, and then after ninety years we go to heaven like right. that. That often seems to be the general sentiment, um, which <laughs> I don't even know if that's a... It, to me, it's not only is it unrealistic, I don't even know that it's biblical. And uh, I'm curious your thoughts because you're genuinely, I think it's safe to say, a nicer person than me. <laughs> you're, you're just... You're just you're Somebody more, please cut that up and hold it. I need that. That's going to be my ringtone. You're tone. just pleasant. You're pleasant. You're kind. I feel like you're, you've are you got to be one of those guys I imagine, Brian, from mm. where... Like people just want to be around you. Like, oh, he's a he's a nice guy. Oh, I don't. I think it's true though. I don't think my wife just drove off the road. <laughs> uh, but do you, do you find though like that people will sometimes make that claim like, oh, Christians yes. should just never get angry? What do you what do you say when you hear stuff like that, either in your church or just out in the world? I think that there's there are different kinds of anger, right? Okay. So. Uh, sometimes our anger is sinful when it's destructive or when it is, uh, come, you know, I, I think when it's uh, meant to tear another person down, whatever it might be. But the simple fact is if you go into scripture, uh, I think it's quite clear that Jesus got angry, right? Jesus got angry. And so that right there causes us to go, well, of clearly anger is not sinful. So really, I think the question becomes, uh, if Jesus wasn't always pleasant and Jesus wasn't always nice and Jesus got angry, then the question becomes, um, you know, what is righteous anger? Like, think about his dealings with the Pharisees, right? In, um, you know, when he's calling them whitewashed tombs and hypocrites, sometimes when we only have the printed word in front of us, you can read it like Jesus was like, hey, guys. You're like whitewashed white tombs. tombs. Or how about how about brood of vipers? Yeah, hey, you're just some brood of uh, vipers. Just you know, but instead, let's, you let's can, have some tea. I would have to think Jesus was like, there's an exclamation point on it, oh, right? Interesting. Goes, hypocrite. You know, he's yelling hypocrites, and Jesus comes into the temple and he he drives out you know the uh, uh, the people doing business in the temple, and he's overturning t- overturning tables. It is there there is there is clearly righteous anger. Okay. 
And, and so we, we kind of need to differentiate because I also think there's sinful anger. And so I think that's what we need to differentiate between. Uh, we were never called to just be meek and mild. Uh, we were called to be um, uh, to be passionate about those things that Jesus is passionate about. Okay. Caveat. Oh, stop it. I think <laughs> I think we are called to be meek in some capacity. I think that's Sermon on the Mount, right? So well, the meek. Right? So that is part of it. Yep. So you said we're not called to be meek. I think we are. I meant to say we're not called to only be meek. Okay, that's fair. Yep. That's totally fair. The other caveat is I personally always want to be careful whenever I say, well, Jesus did it, so I should do it. Because like anytime that I bridge that gap, yep. even though... Christian means to follow Christ. Like that is, we are to follow in the mm-hmm. way of our rabbi. There is sometimes I think, yeah, Jesus was flipping tables, so I'm going to flip tables. Like Jesus's motives are probably a little it more on point back than to ours. Motives, yes. Right, most of the time. That's not to say never. So yeah, that's where I think some of the problem lies because we say, well, I could never, I'll never 100% live as Jesus lived. So I guess I should just never be angry. Like one of the things mm. I said to our church years ago, I said some of us need to repent. For always getting angry. Mm. Others of us need to repent for never getting angry. There are things in our culture, our society, and, and you know, without, without being too obvious here, the things that Jesus tends to get most angry about isn't like traffic jams yeah. and soaring tax prices. He gets mad at injustice, at the exploitation of others, particularly uh, in the name of God and religion. Mm-hmm. Like, he withholds his harshest criticisms for the religious people. Yes. You and I are pastors. If we don't at least give pause to that reality, I think we're in danger because yeah. so often we're like, yeah, I'm I'm like Jesus and I'm getting mad at the same things Jesus is getting mad at. Like sometimes I wonder if religious people, we should be the ones like, oh, I wonder if I'm doing something that makes yeah. Jesus angry. That's good. And we don't really picture him as the, a figure that ever gets angry. So we sometimes, I think, get lulled into this safe sense of like, yeah, yeah, his love is absolutely unconditional. God loves us just as we are, and too much to let us stay that way, which mm. means also sometimes confronting that which is toxic in us. Yeah. And it's like it's like chiseling marble to make a statue. That chiseling is gonna hurt. Like at times that's gonna be yeah. that's gonna be painful. And we tend to think of the Christian life as pain free and Jesus never gets upset. You're like, okay, so a God that never gets upset at injustice and exploitation is is really problematic for a number of reasons, I think. So how do we actually practically navigate this then? How do we look at the life of Jesus and see that when, you know, one, one of his closest attacks a guard that would arrest him with a sword, and Jesus says, no, 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 that's not how we live. That's not how we go. But then he also is flipping some tables over and cracking some whips. How do you reconcile yeah, these, yeah. these two different seeming d- postures of Jesus? Yeah, it's hard because... Even uh, in in the uh, book of Romans, chapter twelve, verse nine, Paul says, "Hate what is evil." Yeah, that like, sounds like how often anger. do like how often <laughs> do I tell my kids, and rightfully so, for most cases, like, "Oh no, we don't say the word hate. Never, we don't hate anything." Or what really means we don't hate anybody. But um, you know, he says, "Hate what is evil," and then he goes on to say, "Cling to what is good." And in many ways, I, I'm referencing this article that I found that's really good along this point you and I are talking about. You know, I love this guy named Scott Sauls. He's a pastor. And writes his blog, and I would highly recommend his blog, scottsauls.com. He says, Paul was advocating for the healthy, love-driven kind of anger. Hatred toward evil, according to Paul, is a byproduct of love for the good. Because we love what is good, we naturally abhor things like abuse, theft, disease, depression, death. We hate injustice, poverty, dishonesty, and spin. We hate seeing children neglected, spouses abandoned, the elderly and poor forgotten. 
We hate these things. We get angry about them because we feel protective of the excellent, pure, lovely, praiseworthy things that they threaten to contradict. Mm-hmm. I think that is that is great. Like I think we've got to just have an honest conversation about what falls under the umbrella of evil in the Bible. Yeah. Like what is evil? If Paul's saying hate what is evil, then that would that would presuppose that we. Uh, not just have license, but we should get angry about the things that are evil. And so that kind of moves the conversation forward. What are, what are the things that are evil? And Saul's there, and I totally agree with him. It's things like injustice. It's things like uh, dishonesty. It's things like poverty. It's things like abuse. Like those are the things we need to be getting angry about. And the things that are more self-serving or more toxic um, that that tear other people down. This and that. Those are probably the wrong kind of anger. I think we have the ability uh, to differentiate, and I think we see that in the life of Jesus. Yeah, and it's good to note, and this is where I think scholarship is really important, and good theology and doctrine and exegesis. There's a there's a big fancy church word for yep. like what the text is really saying, because like Psalm four, Ephesians four. So often it's like don't you know don't get angry is how it's interpreted. But a lot of yep. I mean there's some good scholarly work to suggest it saying. Be angry and don't sin. Mm. Saying don't sin in your anger. In your anger. But you still should most certainly look yeah. at certain things and say, nah, I'm, ang- I'm angry about yeah. that. And so often I think we don't give permission for Christians to be angry about injustice, yep. even if they're done to them. And I want to I kind of wrap up with this because there's a, a book named Hope Has Its Reasons by mm. Rebecca Pippert. And she said something that I find so fascinating. And I think this will be a conversation that we'll have many, many times. Yep. But she said, uh, love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, and the traitor. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. Mm. And the final form of hate is indifference. What do you think of that? That's really powerful. I mean, it's... she. You and I spend 10 minutes trying to get our arms around it. We're like, oh, we could have just read that quote because it's great, (laughs) right? Like... There is restorative anger and there is loving anger. And again, we talk about in marriages, like we're doing a disservice to marriages. Like, oh, you'll never get angry at each other. Well, yeah, you will. And then you're going to bottle it up and explode. Even the Bible, what's the verse we always use about marriage? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. It doesn't say don't get angry. Oh, wow. That's good. It's like work through your anger. And uh, so, no, what she said there, that is that is smack. That is really good. That's good stuff, right? Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is in the final form of hate is indifferent. Let's not be indifferent to the things that are toxic in our lives that hurt and exploit the most vulnerable among us. Well, this has been The Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins.
Hi ho, neighbors. How was that? How was that one? Not, not your not, best. Not a good. Not your best. Hold on, let me write that down real quick. No to Heidi Ho neighbors. No, no to Ned Flanders <laughs> from The Simpsons. No, 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 no. I think that was Wilson from uh, Heidi Ho neighbors. Oh yeah, yeah. From Home Improvement. Okay. Oh, Tim I missed the that show. Man Taylor. I'm gonna go home and watch it. No, I don't think that show would be funny anymore. I'm guessing. Are you serious? You are blaspheming right so now. So, which shows for you oh, from no. when you were younger have most kept like? Uh, they're, they're as funny now as they were then or as poignant now as they were then, and which ones don't? Oh, good question. I, I, while you think. So right. I, the obvious ones are like The Office and Seinfeld. Yeah. I think right. those will be good forever. But if you watch like Friends now, it feels really weird. I never weird. watched Friends. That was uh, never my show. My wife and I were really into Friends back when it was on. It just doesn't hold. You know which one is probably my favorite show ever? What? The Wonder Years. Oh, for sure. 100%. And you could, you could watch High five the me. Wonder, High five you could watch the yes. Wonder Years right now. I just high-fived you. It took me away from my microphone. I'm so sorry. Uh, you can watch The Wonder Years now and cry the same way you did 20 years ago. 100%. Here are my two other entries. Okay. Three other entries. Four. I don't know. We were planning on talking about this. Um, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Oh. Uh, Happy Days. Uh, cheers. I love Cheers. Cheers. And my brother and I used to love to geek out. Speaking of Cheers, we would uh, we watched Frasier all I, the time. I can imagine. I love. Yes, I loved Frasier so much. It's such a fun show. Okay, that's not at all what we were planning on talking about. But I like that. We should go with that. And we, we have 15 seconds left for this. <laughs> so this has been the Common Good on AM 1160. So text us the shows that hold up. <laughs> six eight six eight three. Whew, we are unhinged on this Thursday. It all is. Right. So here's a, here's a conversation. Um, and I, I again just. Cards on the table. I'm. I really love brain science, like the way that a, a a novice does. Not that I actually have any you know resources to truly understand that, but I'm always interested in the effects of uh, like negativity yeah. and certain things that we find in scripture, even where Paul talks about meditation. We're now finding like modern science is saying actually that's way more important than you realize. Mm. And I, I just love the more and more we discover that like, man, these ancient mystics and these early church fathers and writers, and they actually were onto something. Oh, what a, what a novel idea. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm curious to talking about uh, negativity and the effects it has on our brain and neuroplasticity and all that. And I, I found this story where uh, it talks about complaining uh, and how it physically rewires our brain to be anxious and depressed. So uh, it's a study, and it's a story done by uh, Dr. Robin Kowalski, professor of psychology at Clemson University. Yep. Um, insists first that complaining is normal. So I'm not at all saying, you know, we were just talking about, you know, anger and stuff. But complaining is a normal yeah. part of the human condition. He gives a couple archetypes of negativity. You have the venters. Venters are people who just want to be listened to. Yep. Uh, sympathy seekers. Everyone's come across one of these before, right? Like they're always trying to one up your misery. And then uh, chronic complainers. These mm. kinds of complainers do something researchers call ruminating, which means to obsessively think and complain about a problem. Instead of feeling relaxed after complaining, they actually become worried and more anxious from the act. And so he goes on to talk about what actually happens in the brain, which again, Scripture speaks to yes. some of the negativity, some of the pitfalls of complaining. Some texts call it grumbling, right? Mm. It's not just a, hey, fall in line and behave as a churchgoer. I really think there's a like deeper, more holistic reason for that. I just want to read you a paragraph and get your response. Yep. Um, it says, it's really worth doing for one, negativ- uh, negativity physically destroys your brain. People who routinely experience chronic stress, particularly acute, even traumatic stress, release the hormone cortisol, which literally eats away almost like an acid bath at the hippocampus, which is a part of the brain that's very engaged in visual spatial memory, as well as memory for context and 
setting, explains Rick Hansen, PhD, uh, psychologist and senior fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at uh, UC Berkeley. Plus, neg- uh, negative thinking reinforces neuropathways associated with that emotion, eventually making it an automatic reaction. Wow. How interesting is that? Yeah, it's like that Saturday Night Live skit, Debbie Downer. Do you remember that one? Yeah. <laughs> the, I used <laughs> yes. to love that skit. My wife and I, we love that skit. But it kind of plays out that they're, that the more negative you are, uh, that's awesome. You, you tend to bring articles to us and stuff. with us. I think these kind of stuff fascinates you. And, and, uh, it really does. And I always learn. And, and so... It, that the more negative you are, the more that becomes your automatic reaction. It's like a groove, like a rut. That and just I sort think of gets... we get. I think we know that. We all know those people in our lives. Mm. They they lead with no, or they're just always negative. And so, therefore, what this is saying, it's actually uh, scientifically proven. Your brain is is actually no, no. It's actually scientifically true yeah. that the that the increase in negativity bi- negativity builds more negativity in your life later. So therefore, you've got to actually retrain your brain and almost yes. like, you know, the same way you put it, almost make new grooves yes, that will right. allow you to be more positive. You can change your brain chemistry, which actually rewires neural pathways, which rewires and reframes patterns of behavior and what you're most likely to respond with, whether it's yeah. negativity or appreciation. So I, I want to read their four suggestions um, and then get some of your reactions yep. to them because, again, not a Christian article, quote-unquote Christian article, not written yep. from a biblical perspective. Right. But the kind of stuff that each of these I read, I'm like, oh, yeah, we I was taught some of this in Sunday school. Yeah, I just love the fact, before you read them, that we can read out of these health journals or whatever, like you said, and be like, that preaches. Yeah. Because it just speaks to the truth of Scripture, again, that it's not something altogether separate from science. Our, our whole, all truth is God's truth. and. And yeah, again, I, I, it's really humbling to read those kind of things. Yeah, no kidding. All right, here they are. Four suggestions to kind of rewire your brain. First, be grateful. Find something to be grateful for every day. If you keep a journal, write down three things you are grateful for every morning and every night. If you start to feel anxious or pessimistic, pause a minute and write them down again. If it's too hard, write down five or even ten new things you're grateful. By the end of the exercise, you'll feel much happier and fulfilled. Number two, catch yourself. Don't wait for your friends or family to tell you you're complaining. Pay attention to your thoughts and words. If you're complaining, quickly shift your energy to find solutions and lessons to be learned. Afterwards, treat yourself with a nice cup of tea for the effort. Yeah. I would replace tea with coffee or I do iced tea, ice cream, maybe. Iced tea. Can we agree yeah. on ice cream though? Sure. Okay. Sure. <laughs> who who cream. couldn't agree on ice cream? Bring it Ian and Brian together. Yes. Uh, number three, change your mood. If you feel overwhelmed and negative, remove yourself from whatever you're doing and shift your state of mind. If you're home. Sit down with your favorite book and cook up a tasty treat. If you're at work, go to the washroom or break room for a few minutes and listen to your favorite song. Breathe deeply. Close your eyes. Paying attention to every word. Hold on to that relaxing feeling and carry it with you throughout the day. And number four, practice wise effort. Wise effort is the practice of letting go of anything that doesn't serve you. If you if your worry won't improve your situation or teach you a lesson, let it go. Move on. This is obviously much easier said than done. Mm. But if you write it out, ask friends for advice, and take some time to think it through constructively, it can really be done. Yeah. What do you think of that? What it strikes me about all four of these is there's nothing passive about any of them. Oh, good. These That's are good. all very active, proactive, uh, like I'm going to take steps to change what might be my normal bent. Yep. Uh, and oftentimes we're like, oh, I'm... Uh, believe me, I'm a proponent of prayer, but we're often like, oh, I'm just going to pray and hope that God changes me. Yeah. And God can do that. But here's just some very um, practical things like choose to be grateful. Catch your, I love the catch yourself one. Yeah. 
Because how often do we do things and not even think, how am I affecting people? What is this oh, coming it's off? Oh, hindsight. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. I was a real jerk back there. That and was so, stupid. You know, like making, I just am struck by the act of nature. And this is so true with all things in our lives, right? Like when we want to make change in our lives, you, you got to actively pursue it. And mm. and so there's nothing passive about this, but uh, you got to, uh, if you're a particularly a negative person or you're bent towards negativity, understand that that, that is going to require literally a change in your brain and, and that mm. that's got to be worked at and, and a priority. And that's what I love about these change your mood, practice wise effort. And I would suggest you always say this, these things like our spiritual walk are best done in community. Totally. So go up to a buddy of yours or a friend of yours and be like your spouse or whatever and be like, Hey, you've probably noticed, but I tend to be a pretty negative person. Right. And I'd like to change that about myself. And here's how I'm going to do it. Can you kind of, help me with this. And I would guess that people who love you, but probably don't love your negativity going to be all over this. Oh, no kidding. It's also like what we do for everything else. Like you want to get fit. Like, Hey, I need a running partner. I need a workout partner. Hey, I want to eat better. You invite people into that. But for some reason, when it comes to like our brain space, we like retreat and we isolate. Like, I just got to just me and my brain. I got to figure it out. Like, no, 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 I don't like, I'm not to overly pasteurize. (laughs) Pasteurize. (laughs) That's good. Like these four, like, all of these could be a sermon, right? Be grateful. Not just for grateful sake, but like, man, you are a beloved child of God. That's, yes. a, that's a big catch yourself. It means I don't want to continue in this pattern that leads me down a path that's not who I believe Christ made me to be. Change, change your mood is, man, I recognize that the enemy is going to come after me, but but the tomb is still empty. The cross still has victory yeah, over these preach. things. Practicing wise effort, right? Like it's the whole New Testament. Yeah. Letters written to the churches of how to actually exist in this world yes. and to do it wisely and to do it in the context of community. I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm pumped up about this, man. I think this is, this is really good. So one more time, those four practices. Be grateful. Catch yourself. Change your mood. Practice wise effort. I think that's a good challenge for all of us. Awesome. You've been listening to The Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. I always feel like I should be wearing like platform shoes and like a glam outfit. That one, right? Do you own a glam outfit? I mean, I'd be willing to get one. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what incentive that would fulfill. <laughs> anyway, welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. A couple of things to let you know. We can, uh, you can, you, we we can find ourselves. You can also find us on it is Facebook. A true statement. That's, we can. <laughs> Very existential of you. Uh, <laughs> on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, plus wherever you get your podcasts. And before we dive into this next segment, Brian, I believe there's a contest you want to let people know about. That's true. Gre- <laughs> Greg Laurie, Phil Wickham, Lecrae for King and Country. You could win the chance to see them all live this August. Just enter to win now at 1160hope.com slash contest. Uh, we're giving away a trip for two to SoCal Harvest 2019 in Anaheim, including airfare, hotel, and a $700 Visa gift card. Ooh. I want to find that gift card. <laughs> and a free copy of Greg Laurie and Ellen Vaughn's book, Jesus Revolution, is yours just for entering. So register now at 1160hope.com slash contest. That is 1160hope.com slash contest. And I think we should just say if you win, you got to take us to Anaheim with you. Yeah, I'm okay with saying that. Yep. Okay. I don't think we're qualified to say that at all. Nope. But <laughs> let, let it be said. Let it be true. Sure. Right? <laughs> I think it's to let it be written, so let it be done is the uh, Charlton Heston. <laughs> One of these times, we're going to have a whole segment. Is it really Charlton Heston? I mean, as Moses, I think. 
Isn't it? Am I remembering this so incorrectly? I'm clearly remembering it. (laughs) What did you say? Charlton Heston with the NRA? Was it? (laughs) We are off the rails today. (laughs) Oh, that's fun. Are we okay? Let's just do this for another half hour or so. Just uh, the Wonder Years. (laughs) Not a great idea. All right. So um, we're not supposed to say it this way, but I'm just going to say it this way. I found an article. Yep. Christianity Today. And I think it's so interesting. The title alone kind of had me. It says, uh, bringing a tent peg to a sword fight. Um, I want to read a little bit of it. Go for it. And then kind of dive into the meat of it because I think the message beneath this ah, is so timely and so difficult. It says, uh, in the first battle of Armageddon, the enemy commander was killed with uh, camping equipment. Speculation about the next round has been the stuff of best-selling books and blockbuster movies, replete with speculation about a world government flying locust scorpion warships, barcodes, conspiracies, the EU nuclear weapons, and a giant meteor steaming toward Earth with Bruce Willis on board. (laughs) But the first time a war was fought at Harmageddon, the hill of Megiddo, the decisive blow was struck with the most everyday objects imaginable. Sisera, commander of the mighty Canaanite armies, had his head crushed by Jael, a tent-dwelling woman wielding a mallet and a tent peg. That's from Judges 4, 17 to 22. And if you've not read that story before, uh, head to Judges 4. It's crazy. It's, it really is a crazy one. But here's why I just read all of that insanity. Um, the article goes on to talk a lot about the narrative of Scripture and how God is not just sometimes, but consistently using really ordinary, dare I say, common things <laughs> to achieve his purposes in the world. And so often it's so easy, I think, for us to head to the big and the loud and the dramatic. We were just talking a couple days ago about sort of the idolatry of impact, and yet it seems so often, Old Testament and New, that God seems intent even on using very, very surprising things and people to accomplish really, really extraordinary ends. But I'd love to know your thoughts about that. Yeah, can I just, let me just read one more yeah, paragraph please. here because it's, it's really powerful. You can get this at ChristianityToday.com. Uh, it just came out in May, so it's, an, it's a new article by, I believe, Andrew Wilson, I believe is his name. And he writes this. He says, the most obvious purpose is reminding Israel over and over again that its military security does not come from strength, numbers, weaponry, or ability, but from the power of God fighting on its behalf. In that sense, the victory of tools over weapons speaks to a larger biblical pattern in which strong armies worshiping false gods are overcome by weak armies worshiping the true God. Mm. The very strangeness of the weapon is the whole point. Nobody could win with that unless God was with them. It could be a tent peg or a cattle prod. It could be an angel. It could be a jawbone, a pebble, a song, or an altar soaked in water that suddenly catches fire. Whatever the means of victory, it rams home the point that Israel's success comes not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord oh, Almighty. Good, like It's just so good. And, and you could miss this as you're reading scripture. But then as he's talking about each of these, you go, yeah, you know what? When I look back, the walls of Jericho came down with a trumpet. Like, yes. Why did God do it that way? Right. Uh, sometimes you read scripture, and I've said this uh, at our church sometimes, sometimes you read scripture and you're like, is God showing off here? Hmm. Like, is he just kind of showing off? And and as Wilson here in this article continues to show time after time, right, David taking down Goliath with a stone or, um, you know, when uh, what's the one story where God keeps shrinking the army smaller and smaller and smaller and yeah. says, okay, now you're ready. Independence Day, I think. <laughs> No, is that not the story? <laughs> We're bedfasters. <laughs> My Wheaton props right now are like, oh, they're oh, banging God. their head on their desk. 
Uh, you know, that Old Testament story. Yes. And so, uh, but Wilson makes this ultimate point in this article that uh, that as we go through the Old Testament and it is it is it is this kind of pattern, it kind of sets up for the ultimate of this, and that is uh, that sin and death and darkness were defeated ultimately by a Roman cross. Yeah, right. That not by power, but that Jesus hung on a Roman cross, an ordinary means of execution. And you, um, we read it uh, around Good Friday. You wrote so well on the crucifixion. Um, this brutal instrument of death God used to bring ultimate salvation and redemption. And it just continues this biblical story. And then, like you said, there's this constant theme of God using ordinary things and ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And then that gives us hope because I don't know about you. I feel common. I feel ordinary. And so I can take I can take great uh, solace and encouragement by these stories being listed over and over and over again. Yeah. And so we we read that story from uh, Judges four. But he goes on, he says, another judge, Shamgar, defeats the Philistines with a cattle prod. Gideon wins with jars and trumpets. The Philistine king Abimelech is killed by a millstone being thrown over the wall. Mm. The second time in five chapters that an obscure woman has crushed the head of a powerful man with a domestic implement. Jericho's walls, as you mentioned, were brought down by a musical instrument. Moses brought the Israelites from Egypt using a staff designed for steering sheep. God, it seems, likes commonplace tools, Mm. the stuff of cooking, building, farming, and culture making. And then he ends it this way. He says, the ultimate contrast, however comes at the cross. Hmm. Rome, the most powerful military force the world has yet seen, gathers a battalion of soldiers to inspect Israel's king. They are armed. He is stripped. They come with swords and spears. He comes in with nothing but uh, nothing but in the name of the Lord God. They carry the most advanced weapons available. He is carrying the ordinary carpenter's tools of his upbringing, mm. nails, hammers, and planks of wood. So and that, good. Oh, that's like a goosebumps poetry it for me is. because... I, I'll be honest, just as a pastor, isn't it easy to get really caught up in the flash and the glam? And not only any of those things are inherently evil either, Nope. but it can be really attractive, can it? When you think of like ministry and impact and reach and growth and all yeah. those things. And when you really get into it, that God seems intent on using items that are not only commonplace, but often surprise everyone around. And then it moves on to the same thing being about people, right? Like, do you think Jesus came and he was like, you know what? I just, I can't get anyone else to join me except the fishermen yeah, right. and the tax collector. Man, I really wish those those scholars would come with me, but uh, they, they went with the other rabbi. Like, right. Jesus intentionally went to the fishermen and the tax collector. And, and in the early church is very purposefully uh, birthed out of these broken, like, bottom of the totem pole people. Mm-hmm. And you and I talked about, again, when we were talking about impact the other day, that we as pastors or we as missionaries or we as just ordinary Christians feel like uh, that we've got to make all this stuff happen. And, and like, it, it becomes easy to become overwhelmed. And it's like, no, it's not about you. And these stories over and over and mm-hmm. over again show us. It's not about you. In, in fact, sometimes God just shows off to show his own power by taking the most ordinary things and just going and going crazy with them. And that should really give us confidence to go live out our calling uh, and to live with boldness, not because we are so talented, right, right. but because the Holy Spirit that resides in us does amazing things in and through his people. And that isn't still to not, you know, work hard at your craft Absolutely. and hone your skill and hone your abilities, but those aren't ultimately king, not not just in terms of our pursuits, but ultimately the warriors are no match for a carpenter, right? Mm. And I think that that is such a good reminder that so often when the world says scream louder, fight harder, 
this peculiar rabbi chooses a completely yes. different way, and we fall in the footsteps of that rabbi. Yes. Well, you've been listening to The Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Okay, you, you know what band that is, though, right? You got, oh, you I got could it. sing this song completely, but I don't know if I can Please sing. Don't. I don't get it. You want a clue? Is it even worth? Mm. <laughs> you making that noise makes everyone so uncomfortable. I give me a clue. First word is sugar. <laughs> I wish everyone could have seen the look you just gave me. It's sugar ray. The song's not. It's not worth knowing. I used it's to have tough. a CD in which this was on it. What's a CD? Exactly. Just I kidding. Tape. All right, so before we dive in, uh, you have something to tell us. Speaking of tapes. <laughs> oh, gosh. Have you been blessed by Through the Bible's five-year verse-by-verse study with Dr. J. Vernon McGee? The continued success of Through the Bible, even after passing the passing of Dr. McGee, gives testimony to God's blessing on the ministry. If you've been listening to Through the Bible with J. Vernon McGee on AM 1160, let the ministry know how they've impacted your life. Visit 1160hope.com slash letter now. Through the Bible airs weekday mornings at 5 and weekday evenings at 10.30, only on AM 1160. So go to 1160hope.com slash letter and let Through the Bible know the impact that it's made in your life. Is is going through the Bible a laughing matter, Brian? Is that why? <laughs> Sometimes, man. Sometimes. Sometimes. I think I think this has become our new goal is to try to make the other one giggle during uh, you win, a live read. You win on that today. I, I do. You I'm win. a little frightened of what the wrath may be, though, coming next week. Uh, <laughs> all right. So a um, cu- couple of things I want to talk about. We've been talking a good deal about brain science. Yep. We can just call this Brain Science Thursday or something. It has been. It's been fun. I, I enjoy these. It is also us talking way out of our element, just to be clear. Yep. like we, My education uh, has very little to do with any of this, but... This uh, this headline caught my attention. It says neuroscience shows that 50-year-olds can have the brains of 25-year-olds if they sit quietly and do nothing for 15 minutes a day. So there's there's all this evidence, all this research. I would highly encourage you, go find the article yourself. It's on Business Insider. You can dive into the weeds here. But I, I find the invitation to do nothing not only refreshing, but also something so difficult to so do. So difficult. Like even... Like, if I have my phone on me and I'm, like, feeding my kid, I'm, like, still, well, I might as well scroll Facebook while I'm also feeding my son a bot. Just be yep. present with your son. What yep. are you, like, I, it's it's strange to me how difficult it is to do. Um, but I got to be honest, the more I read articles like this that make really legitimate medical claims is actually good for, like, brain health. Mm. I don't know. I, I think it's motivating. I, I mean, the proof is in the pudding, I guess, if I actually do it, but... Like, how do you respond to things like this? Do you find this interesting? Is it surprising? Is it Oh, inspiring? it's not surprising at all. It's it why the Bible talks over and over again, right, about the concept of Sabbath and of rest and of uh, of these types of things. But this is literally like t- to take t- 15 to 20 minutes. And, you know, they talk about meditation in here, like just kind of sitting and doing nothing and uh, just uh, slowing down and unplugging. And, and that's interesting that it, it actually shows that it's changed the brains that as you get older— that doing this sort of stuff is healthy for your brain yep. and that our brains were not made and wired to constantly be going and constantly be running and that there needs to be a break. And then, uh, yeah, so no, I, this does make sense. It's just hard. It's one of these things that go, you go, yeah, I agree with that, but man, I'm not sure I'm going to live that out very well. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I appreciate the humility in it's owning. It's true. Like, it's just true. But the other thing that's crazy to me is we live in an age where there's always a product to make these things easier, right? And I, I remember the rise of Fitbit. I don't know, do you have a Fitbit? I don't, but I'm fully aware of them. Like, yep, and I'm not yep. knocking Fitbit at all. And yep. I, you know, there's a trillion different apps you can get to like track and monitor, and there's stuff you can buy for your screens and your shoes and your pants and your whatever it is. You know, like we just there's. And, I, and some of them might actually be helpful. The thing that I find so interesting about, like, rest and meditation, and as Christ followers, we don't need to freak out about the word meditation. It's free. It's, yeah. You don't have to have a studio or incense or a window that faces east. You don't need any of that stuff. And yet, you know, in our, like, constant obsession with doing more, um, it's going to be really, really hard for us to do. And I'm curious why you think that is. I think it is because we think that if we are busy, then we are important. If we are busy, then we have value. Mm. And I mean, just think about it, man. How many times do you talk? Do you either answer this way or do you answer to or do people answer you? Hey, how are you doing, man? I'm so busy. I'm so busy. And and that is it's like a little pat we, on the back, right? Like, yes. Yeah. Yes. And. I answer that way a lot. I mean, you always answer with "I'm tired," but <laughs> that is accurate most of the time. <laughs> but I wish people could know here. Every time somebody asks you how you doing, you go, "I'm so, so tired, <laughs> tired." Right? But I do think I think there's something to be said that we're not just busy because we're all busy. I think we're busy because it makes us feel important. Mm. That's a really uh, heavy observation that I think drives that. It's not just because we need. Our mortgage is more expensive than we thought, yeah. or I'm trying to put my kids through college. That is often the stuff that we say, right? But what you're driving at has to do with like identity, purpose, and value, right? 100%. If, if I am the sum of my accomplishments, then of course I'm going to obsessively say yes to everything yep. because my value and identity is inextricably connected to that. And that's that's hard to break, which is also interesting to me because I feel like all these articles I'm reading about the gray matter that's increased in our neuroplasticity that's found in meditating, those things also have shown to link to greater courage when saying no to the stuff that isn't good for us. Interesting. Like it makes us more receptive to learning. It bonds us to the people around us. Like who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want to be able to learn and retain better and faster? Who doesn't want to make deeper connections with those closest to them? It also sounds a lot like church, doesn't it? Yes. When we increase those things, like we, I think, I don't know, when we celebrate together and we mourn together and everything in between. And because I want to make sure that we get a little practical, um, I want to offer just a couple of suggestions that this other article, it's called uh, Making the Case for Doing Nothing. Um, they offer just a couple of suggestions. And again, it's not a Christian publication, but I, I just think it is it is really helpful. The first one kind of preaches to what you were saying. Resist the culture of busyness. If you're doing nothing, own it. Mm. When someone asks what you're doing during a nothing break, simply respond, nothing. Be unapologetic about taking breaks or holidays, and if you start to feel guilty about being seen as lazy, uh, think about it not as a sign of laziness, but as an important life skill. Number two, manage your expectations. Mm. Learning takes time and effort, so don't get discouraged if you don't catch on immediately and the benefits don't you know become obvious right off the bat. Number three, uh, reorganize your environment. Your surroundings have a major impact on how much nothingness you can embrace. I'll be honest. like Sometimes if I'm trying to just kind of chill and there's all sorts of clutter around me, I I last about 12 seconds. Yep. I'm like, well, guess I better start cleaning, right? Yep. And then four, think outside the box. If you can't sit still in your home or workplace, go to the park. Mm-hmm. Find a book that's relaxing. Go to a spa. Like, Make, make it a priority to actually say, uh, this is an important enough value for Scripture itself to mention numerous times 
that we so often, I think, believe that we're human doings, not human beings. And Good. when we buy into that lie, it isn't just the result isn't just um, I'm a little more tired than I otherwise would be. It affects yeah. our brains. Yeah. And I really do think it affects like our hearts and souls. Too. I think it does, too. It gives you anxiety. Uh, it raises your stress level. None of us were like a machine, right? You're not uh, the machine. Don't just constantly run, 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 run. That that breaks them down. And I, we're in the same way. We're not meant to live that way. But man, this is so counterintuitive to say that to slow down and takes breaks requires uh, requires planning. Yeah, it really does. You're never just going to find you. There are seasons where you might find yourself just falling into nothing. Like I got nothing to do, but <laughs> right. rarely, right? right? That rarely happens. Hmm. And uh, I just, I've talked about often, I had the great blessing of being on sabbatical this past summer. Right. And man, it was unbelievable. I had no new messages on my inbox for like a month. You didn't? No. How did you manage that? Because every morning I'd delete them or put them in folders. Because every day I wanted it to stare at me and say no. And you know how email works. If you don't answer them, they, it's just a loop. You answer, they answer, you answer. (laughs) So if you stop that loop and our church people were awesome about like, leave them alone. Right. Uh, and to be able to have that space was just so life-giving. Yeah. It was so life-giving. But the question is, how do you take Sabbath and sabbatical and that kind of stuff and enter it into your daily life uh, of just having recharge time? And it's good spiritually for you, but as we already just mentioned, it's also really good physically for you. It yep. does good things for your blood pressure and your heart and your brain. And uh, if it, we often will make jokes, it's kind of a dark joke, but to say uh, either... Uh, you're going to choose to Sabbath or you're going to be forced to. Oh, <laughs> like right. Your body will be illness down. or injury, yeah, heart yeah. attack right. or something. And so, you know, but it requires planning and you, it requires saying no to things. But we would challenge all of you out there where in your schedule is it blocked out for? Uh, nothing time or a walk or whatever, something yeah. to recharge. Yeah. And what does your schedule say about what you believe to be true about God, yep. right? And if you believe that you are loved just as you are, like I think of when Jesus says, come to me, yep. all who are weary, and I will give you what? Rest. More rules, yes. more objectives. No, I'll give you I'll give you rest. It makes me think, of, I'll, I'll close with this. Charles Spurgeon said, rest time is not waste time. It is economy to gather fresh strength. It is the wisdom to take occasional furlough. In the long run, we shall do more by sometimes doing less. Mm. Like that, I think, appeals to our sensibilities. And yeah. I've seen it to be true. And it's something that I want to continue to try and get better at each and every day. Well, coming up next, we're going to lay in the plane, as we say, with just some <laughs> interweb insanity stuff. Our, our uh, executive producer found. We're going to read it sight unseen. And uh, hopefully you'll have a laugh along with us. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. On May 10th. So don't wait. Call 800 800- 2468751 or go to balanceofnature.com and use discount code chicago am1160 here's some weird stuff we found on the internet <clears throat> here's some more weird stuff we found on the web Okay, so that actually was Brian Fromm's band from high school. <laughs> yes, it was. You can see why they were not all that <laughs> successful. <laughs> Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Michael Simpkins, joined by Brian Ulysses Fromm. Not, not you Ulysses. Can, it's Ulysses now. It's been said over the air, nope. and it is what it is. So nope. let it be said. So let it be written. <laughs> or whatever you said. <laughs> whatever I said before. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. Plus, we're podcasted. That's all you need to know about that. Okay, so at the end of every show... 
Keith Conrad, our executive producer, picks a couple of stories, just interweb insanity, They're and nuts. then yes. delivers to him literally on the desk, face down. We've not seen them. And then he's loaded sound effects into the computer. We've also not heard those. So we read them sight unseen, which usually means we stumble over our words, we giggle like children, and uh, it's We feel fun. a little guilty about them. Right. It's fun for at least the two of us. So yes. uh, here we go. Kick us off. Oregon. Man sentenced to prison for trying to bribe ICE agent to deport his wife. Oh, my word. A Portland man has been sentenced to four months in federal prison after attempting to bribe an immigration and customs enforcement agent to deport his wife. Yikes. According to the U.S. Attorney's Office, Antonio Oswaldo Burgos followed an ICE deportation officer until the officer pulled over in a parking lot. When the officer stopped, he offered the officer money to deport his wife. Yikes. He had met her in El Salvador and was in the process of divorcing her. He offered the officer $3,000 if he would help remove Burgess's wife from the U.S. In a second recorded call, Burgess offered a reward for removing his wife once uh, again. Oh, my gosh. You nailed it. You nailed it. $3,000? Does that seem low? I don't know. It seems low. Does it seem? I have never tried to deport my wife, but Based on my vast experience of bribing government officials. All right, this one's out of Georgia. A uh, child opens a box of Legos, finds $40,000 in meth. Oh, no. I don't know if I should be laughing or... Yeah, we'll yeah laugh. we're laughing. Three Georgia women bought a box of Legos while visiting a South Carolina consignment, consignment shop, only to find that the box was actually filled with about $40,000 worth of methamphetamine. Hmm. Bullock County Sheriff's Investigator Jim Riggs tells the Statesboro Herald that the women gifted the box to a child who opened it and discovered three pounds of drugs. I want you just to picture that scene. Yeah. He's at a birthday party, surrounded by a bunch of his friends, and he's like, oh, thanks for the... What? What is this? <laughs> it's like I picked the wrong week to put amphetamines. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is uh, so weird. England. The call came from America. I have a piece of Stonehenge. An 89-year-old huh. gave a piece of Stonehenge back to Stonehenge. As the BBC reports, one of the trilithons, the distinct three stone arrangements that make up the prehistoric monument, had fallen. And so in 1958, archaeologists went about writing it. While doing so, they noticed one of the stones had cracked. To bolster it, three three-foot-long cores were extracted from it to create holes for the placement of metal rods. Wow. Robert Phillips, who worked for the diamond-cutting firm that participated in the effort, kept one. Now retired in Florida, Florida of course, it's Phillips Florida. decided it was time to give it back. He did so a year ago, but news of it is only being released now by English Heritage, which tends to Stonehenge and says it wanted to be able to explain the value of what it had received. The little children of Stonehenge, beneath the haunted moon, for fear that daybreak might come too soon. That's good. I'm so uncomfortable right now. Like, yeah, you're like, that's good. Yeah, there you go. I'm like crawling under the desk, sucking my thumb. Okay, Alabama. Oh, gosh. Why am I getting all the weird ones? <laughs> this one's bad. Man sets fire to house after argument. That'll show you. Boaz, Alabama police said a man set a house on fire late Monday night. Officers stated that they were called to a fire and were told people uh, were in the home. Two officers entered the home and rescued a disabled person on oxygen. Oh. Jeez Louise. Come on, Keith. Invest- yeah, jeez. Investigators discovered Kenneth Barksdale had set fire to the home after an argument had been going all day. 
He fled the scene, obviously. But officers said he returned around 2 a.m. Why are you returning? Yeah. Barksdale was arrested uh, and charged with first-degree arson and three counts of domestic violence. Gosh, he was taken to the Boaz City Jail. Bond has not yet been set. Oh, there'll be a hot in the old town tonight. <laughs> This is honestly maybe one of our weirdest words. This is, this is. And hearkening back to an earlier segment today, that's bad anger. Oh, that's toxic anger. Wow. Scott Saul says no to that anger. That's a really good uh, knitting together of segments, Brian. Last one out of India. Okie doke. How to sink a $3 billion submarine? Forgetting to close a hatch. No. Simple mistakes can lead to really big trouble. The modern submarine is not a simple machine. A loss of propulsion, unexpected flooding, or trouble with reactors or weapons can doom a sub-crew to a watery grave. Yikes. Also, it's a good idea to, like, close the hatches before you dive. Call it a lesson learned for the Indian Navy, which managed to put the country's first nuclear missile submarine, the $2.9 billion uh, sub out of commission in the most boneheaded way possible. There was major damage some 10 months ago due to what a Navy source characterized as human error. No disrespect to the USS Rustolium here, but I'd be better off in the Merrimack. <laughs> I don't know if this is like the right response, but after doing these show after show after show, I always end up feeling like a little bit better about the decisions that I make. Do you ever yeah. leave with that sense of like, okay. I just know that I shouldn't, no matter the taxes, I shouldn't move to Florida. <laughs> <laughs> our apologies to any of our listeners in Florida, but we probably will not be moving down there anytime. If they've listened to this, they know. They understand. <laughs> true. It's not news to them. Well, this has been a lot of fun. We hope that you fun. will join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Most of us know someone who has a successful real estate career. How do they get started? Well, it all starts with the license. 